At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, jump there. We're going to be, majority of the text is there. I just want to take one second, just say hi. Um, introduce myself, if you will. My name is Dave. Uh, if you know Pastor Billy at all, he's kind of put my name together. Um, and so it's just Dave Varga. That's what he calls me. Um, and so that's just, he's from Oklahoma. I don't know where that came from. But he started that, and that's what everyone who knows me calls me that now. Um, it's really just Dave or David, but, um, but he, he kind of coined that term, Dave Varga. But my wife and I, we, uh, we're new-ish, so we were attending Chesterfield, but we live closer to here and through just being friends with Billy and um, just a lot of prayer and, and talking and discussing. God has kind of led us here, so this is our new home. So I didn't introduce myself before that. Oh, thanks for those people, but um, I didn't introduce myself before that because I was always visiting, so I'm no longer visiting. My wife and I, we have three boys, so you guys have one. We have three Maniacs, and if you're in the kids area, I apologize for that. Um, our youngest is named Asher. We call him Smasher for a reason. And so, um, just want to say hi. So if I do come up to you and talk to you, I'm not being superly weird. Um, I'm just I am weird that way. But I would just just saying hi, getting to know more people. So again, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in verses kind of one through five. And Matthew chapter 18 is one of those books of the Bible that it has a lot of verses that we've heard about before. Right? We've, we've listened, we've heard a lot of these verses, but oftentimes it's skipped over as a whole. So over the next five weeks, we as a church are going to be going through systematically Matthew chapter 18. And, and some of the verses that you would probably know that you know, you've heard if you've been around church long enough, you know, you've probably heard this, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off. If your eye in verse 9 causes you to sin, what do you do? You pluck it out, right? Verse 12. If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, won't he leave the 99 and go find the one? Right? Verse, verse 15, we love verses 15 and 16 because that's that, those are the verses that if you have a, a brother or sister who's in sin, you go, you're to go to them by yourself and have that discussion. And if they repent from those sins, you've won your brother or sister over. If they don't, you take two or three more. If they still don't, then you take them in front of the elders. Like those are verses that we kind of just know. Verse 20, where two or more are gathered, there Jesus is also. Verse 22, the forgiveness one. How many times should we forgive? And Jesus says, I tell you not just seven, but 70 times seven. And these are all verses that I like to say that we like to cherry pick and that we've heard about, but never in context of what chapter 18 is. And so the next couple weeks, we're gonna really be putting this into context of what all these verses mean. And this morning, we're gonna be talking about greatness. About greatness. What does greatness look like in the community of Christ? That's our question for the morning. But you see, great, what greatness looks like here versus what it looks like out in the world are two different things. They are polar opposites. 
You see, greatness out there means I will stop at nothing to get what I want. It's all about me. It's this individualistic kind of attitude. It's a me versus you. And it's not just for adults. We raise our kids that way. One of my really good friends, actually, he's my neighbor. He works at a school. And as his kids were kind of getting into, um, into, into the you know, classroom more, and he was at the lunchroom watching them, he's, he told me one day, he goes, it's funny to watch the pecking order, right? The kids are starting to fall in line with who the cool kids are versus who maybe aren't the cool kids. And you see this pecking order. And we feed into that as parents, We push them so hard in certain ways, in sports especially, because if you live on the 32-mile corridor, sports is king out here. Oh, man, we got pitching coaches, we got batting coaches, we got kicking coaches, and we spend all week going all over the place because my kid's going to be the next Justin Verlander, and my kid doesn't even play baseball, so, um, (laughs) but he's going to be. But see, like, we, we push that greatness mentality. Think of the word goat, the greatest of all time. Now, if you're in my generation, there's a debate going on. It's not a debate if you're from our generation of who the greatest basketball player of all times is. It's Michael Jordan. Don't ever, anybody says anything other than that. The greatest of all times. Who's the greatest football player? Who's the greatest baseball player? It's the pursuit of greatness, and they'll stop at nothing to get there. You know, if you've watched this series on Michael Jordan on Netflix, man, he was a tough guy to be a teammate. He did not care. He was a bull. He would run you over if you got in his way to a championship. I remember when I was coaching basketball, there was, it was years ago, there was a coach who um, the New York Jets had called him. They called this guy named Rex Ryan. They were like, hey, we need your help. Come coach us. And after watching some film, he went to his wife and said, hey, honey, it's not working out anymore. The team needs me. And he divorced his wife. Pursuit of greatness. Stop at nothing to get there. And that's what the world teaches us. That's what greatness is. It's all about me, myself, and I. I'll do whatever it takes. And what happens is is relationships fail. Marriages fail. Churches, it starts to infiltrate the church. And you start to see that and feel that and, and in here. And then greatness is starting to be pursued in church. Right? Like, we always want to go to the coolest church out there don't we? Like when you listen to sermons, what do you do? You listen to the good guys. Like everyone knows the guys online that have little clips. And I remember listening to his sermon. And he said, I was, I was lucky enough to be raised in a church with a pastor who you would never know his name. He was a godly man, a man of prayer, a man who pursued holiness, who held true to doctrine and theology, but you would never know his name. But in society today, and I was guilty of it too, when I was in college, I went to the coolest church. I went to North Point Community Church. If you said that when you were down in Atlanta, Georgia, everybody knew where you went. It's the coolest church out there. I got to listen to Louis Giglio. Yeah, front row, he spit on me once. That's how cool it was. (laughs) Like, why do we pursue that? Like, greatness now in church is a new thing. Because we just want, like, what happens just to the good old humble little Bible churches anymore? They, They don't exist because we all want what's great. We all pursue that greatness and want to be part of that. And what we're going to see today in the text as we read is that the disciples had the same problem, that they pursued greatness much like we pursue greatness. And so read with me quick in in chapter 18, verse 1. And always before I read, I always like to pray, so I'm going to pray before we read the word, but let's just pray quick. God, our Heavenly Father, 
As we're about to read your word this morning, um, Lord, we pray that you take all distractions away from us. Help us just to focus on the text and to truly understand uh, what greatness in the kingdom looks like. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So verse 18 says this, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so, again, this pursuit of greatness in the church isn't a new concept. If you read the Old Testament, lots of people pursued greatness. King Saul, Solomon, his whole life was in the pursuit of greatness. At the end of Solomon's life, what did he write? Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Right? So it's not a new concept. But when you think of the disciples and they're arguing over who's greatest in the kingdom, you have to ask yourself, are you not paying attention? You're with Jesus. Like literally, you're next to him most of the time. You've got to hear the Sermon on the Mount. We all, if, if you have never actually read the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what it says. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. None of that sounds like worldly greatness. It's the exact opposite. And what you see is Jesus do all these miracles through the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like they, all the, the recollections of all the things that he did. He walked on water. He fed 4,000. The disciples were there for all of it. They got to see Jesus in human form and how humble he was. And yet they still were arguing who's the greatest. And we know they were arguing about it because if you flip to Mark chapter 9, verses, verse 33, it says this. This is Mark's recollection of the exact same story. It says this, and they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? And so, you know, you got you to sit there and think. And up to this point, you might argue that there wasn't an argument amongst themselves because they all assumed Peter was the greatest. If you think of Peter, he had the, probably the closest relationship with Jesus. He was the most bold, always speaking first, thinking about it later. He walked on water. None of the other disciples did that. Matthew chapter 16, what, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? Upon you, Peter, this rock, I will build my church. The, the other disciples don't stand a chance. But only a few verses later, Jesus begins to tell them about how he's going to be handed over to the Pharisees and he's going to be hung on the cross and he's going to have to die. And Peter stands up and says, absolutely not, Jesus. We won't let it happen. We'll fight. And Jesus rebukes him. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so the other disciples at that moment, they realize they have a chance to be next to Jesus in the kingdom. 
And so they're arguing, and it's not the first time we've seen them argue, and it's certainly not the last. In fact, they argued who was greatest in the kingdom up into the point of Jesus' death. The night before the crucifixion, they were arguing who the greatest was. And what we're going to see here as Jesus starts to explain who the greatest is, it's a conflict, right? It's a conflict of what the world says is the greatest versus what really is the greatest in the kingdom. And that's the, that's the sermon series. It's called Conflicted because there's a constant conflict going on. And that conflict, hear me, it's winning. It's winning. It's destroying families. It's destroying relationships. And it's starting to infiltrate more and more and more into our lives as Christians. And what we're going to see here today is we need to stop it. We need to stop it. And Jesus is going to explain it very well in the verses one through five, one through four. He says, at this time, the disciples came to him saying, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And calling a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly. And that word truly, if you read like the old King James, I love it. It says, verily, verily, I say unto you, verily, like truly, listen to what I'm saying. Pay attention to this. Unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's tough. Unless you turn. And so what, what does greatness look like? It's the pursuit of dependence and not power. That's the first point. It's the pursuit of dependence and not power. It's the opposite of what the world tells us is great. It's humility. And so what Jesus is saying is turn from your sins, turn and become like a child. And that's the salvation process of the New Testament. It's repent and believe. Turn from your sins and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that God raised him from the dead. Those two things. And when you sit back and really read the New Testament, that's what you're going to hear over and over and over again. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And, and if you've grown up in church or if you went to a church like I did, you're probably thinking, like, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it, right? I mean, there's, there's obedience is one thing. Right? We got to do certain things. We got to act a certain way. We got to, right? Ah, the Bible doesn't say obedience comes from that process. And so this is beautiful because Jesus is giving the salvation process far before Paul and Peter and James did. He's saying, turn from your ways. Repent, believe, become like a child. And that vision of a child, let that sink in for a minute. An infant, a child, is 100% dependent on his parents. It can do nothing. He can do nothing without his parents. They struggle to, I mean, they can't eat. They can't feed themselves. They can't dress themselves. They can't put their shoes on. Right? Some of them can. My kids still struggle with it, but I've got to remind them a hundred times. But they're completely dependent on their parents. And so what we see here is this humbling. It's a humility of saying, we can't do it ourselves without Jesus. So we must turn from those ways, become like a child, fully 100% dependent on God. That's what Jesus is saying. And unless we do that, we will never see the kingdom of heaven. And he's laying that out there for them. It's, it's a humility that supersedes most anybody's humility out there. 
the best example of humility is Jesus himself. Is Jesus himself. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has exalted, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What an example the creator of the universe coming down in human form, living a blameless life. And we know he's the creator of the universe because if you go to John chapter one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that's translated in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God and nothing was created that he did not create. The creator of the universe, human form, lived a sinless life, was handed over, was judged, tried, was beaten, and hung on the cross for our sins, for you, for me, for all who would repent and believe. He hung there for us so that we might have the relationship with God the Father. That veil was torn, the chiasm was filled in because of what he did. The pain that he endured, the physical pain, one thing, but the spiritual pain of being separated from the Father, far greater than that, did it for you and for me. What an example that is. It's not about where we're placed, but it's the place that we need to focus on. It's our relationship with him that we need to focus on. Point number two is this, is that what does greatness look like in the kingdom? It's practicing loving care instead of introducing temptation. Let's read five and six here. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Ooh. Now, if that's not a punch in the gut, I don't know what is. Because when, what he's talking about, what does Jesus mean by child? He means us. If, go back a couple verses. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you have to become like a child. So he's talking about anybody and everybody who believes in him, a Christian. And woe to those who cause them to sin. And again, he's, hear me, the outside world is designed for that. The outside world is designed to tempt us, to cause us to sin. Right? Walk, turn your TV on. Watch commercials. Watch YouTube. There's always throwing little things out there. Walk through a store. There's temptations everywhere. And again, it's bled into the church a little bit 
Because not only is it just talking about those big sins that we all always want to talk about, the lust and the alcohol and all those things, it's talking about some of the people that are marginalized, that don't have, the young Christians, the young in their faith, people who aren't wealthy, people who aren't cool, whatever that means when you're older, I mean, but we allow it, these cliques start to form, and you can see it in every church that you go to, and, and we can take advantage of people that way. And what Jesus is talking about, he's talking to you and me. Careful, brothers and sisters, that you don't cause a brother and sister to sin, that you don't take advantage of them, that you don't use them in ways that shouldn't be used. Woe to you. It would be better to have a millstone. And this isn't just some little cinder block. Let's be clear. This thing is 3,000 pounds, 1.5 ton. Can you imagine what that would be like sailing out to the middle of the ocean and having you thrown over with that? You are going down, period. And Jesus is saying it would be better for that to happen than for you to cause one of your brothers and sisters to sin. I mean, think about it. Anybody ever mess with one of your kids and mama and papa bear come out? Oh, that happens quick, doesn't it? It's the same thing what Jesus is talking about. Mess with one of the children of God and watch out. It's better for you to die than to mess with one of them. And those are harsh words because now all of a sudden it turns. It turns on to us that we need to pay attention to what we do. People are watching. Our kids are watching us. Our relationship with God is important. So it's time to grow up a little bit. It's time to stop using excuses. It's time to put those sins to bed and start focusing on being holy. And that's the whole sanctification process. If you've ever heard the word sanctified or sanctification, there's two different forms of it. There's positional. When you become a Christian, you are sanctified in the eyes of God. And then there's the progressive, where it's a continual growth. And the way it grows, the way John Owen says it is that there's mortification, which you are putting to death those sins that so easily entangle you. And vivification, you are pursuing holiness. We have to put to death those things that entangle us and pursue holiness. It doesn't happen in a second. This is a daily battle. At least for me, it is. This is a daily battle. Somebody pulled out in front of me on the way to church this morning. Daily battle. Put those sins to death. Pursue holiness. Didn't feel that way on the way to church. Like, I need Jesus this morning. That's what we have to do. It's on us to do that because people are listening. People are watching. Like, remember that moment if you have kids when you realize they heard and understood you? Yeah. Like, you know, you're driving and all of a sudden they're like, who are you talking about, mommy? Like, the gossip, they hear that, right? Like, the, the downplaying of things, all, it, like, our kids are listening to us. That's where we start. They are paying attention. Woe to us if we cause them or lead them in a way that's not holy, that might cause them to sin. You know, some of us here, we're sitting in church and we're wondering, I don't really, I don't really fit in. You know, the, the thing with, with church is as you get big, that's what happens. You get people that come, listen, and leave. And what Jesus is saying here, stop it. Get engaged. Be in community with each other. We have to do that. We can't just sit, listen, and leave anymore because the world is tough. We've listened to that video from Celebrate Recovery. It's hard out there. And if we don't have brothers and sisters around us to help us through those things, and it's not going to be easy, it's a humbling of ourselves. We have to humble ourselves to do that. Some of us need to repent for those 
things, those sins that are entangling us, for pride, for, for the pursuit of greatness. Some of us have to repent for those things. Some of us have to get reengaged. Like it's time. Like do you realize what's at stake by not having community with each other? Like there's people out there that don't know the Lord. There's neighbors, there's people around you. And going at it alone, if that's your mentality, if you have that individualistic ideology, I can't speak, right? If that's your idea, it's just to be by yourself, me versus everyone else. And you're missing the whole point of the New Testament. You're missing the whole point of the New Testament. They never went at it alone. There was always people around. They always had brothers and sisters in Christ together. When Jesus was asked, Right? What is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Like it's time to put our selfish ambitions aside and start focusing on our community, on each other, on that relationship that we have. And it's humbling. Because some of us need to take a step in and go, all right, it's time to get involved in a life group. It's time to serve in church. And that's hard. It's hard to take a step back and go, okay, it's, I'm going to just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump in. Head first. Let's get into a life group. And some of us that are in those groups, that are in the in, cool crowd in church, it's time to humble ourselves and say, okay, I need to meet more people. I need to stop talking to all the people that I just know, all my friends, and go talk to people that I don't know. Maybe I do see somebody just sitting there by themselves. I should go talk to them. That's what community is. That's that relationship that Jesus is telling us that we need to have with each other. The quote um, is, there's a quote that I'm going to read for you guys, and I love it, because it talks about true humility. C.S. Lewis writes it. C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, um, that was, that's, that's this guy. And he writes this. To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a real humble man, he will be what the people call humble nowadays. He will, be, he will not be some sort of greasy, smeary person who always is telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seems cheerful, an intelligent champ who took a real interest in what you had to say to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility in fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. In Jesus' kingdom, greatness is defined by humility. And hear me, church, this morning, it's time. It's time to put our selfish ambitions aside, our desires, what we think is greatness. And we need to start pursuing God. Take our eyes off the horizontal, off ourselves, and put it on the vertical and start focusing on God. And in so doing, he will help us focus on each other as a community. May we be that church. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning truly just humbled in your presence. Humbled as children that are fully dependent on you. 
children who, who need you more than anything else. Lord, help us to be that church. That we stop focusing on self and stop pursuing greatness in the world, but start pursuing greatness according to what you've taught us. And that is a childlike faith. Help us turn from those sins, to put to death those sins, and to pursue holiness. Lord, so that we can be a church that, um, that the, the people want to be a part of, that they feel comfortable getting involved in, Lord, and it is for your glory only that we do those things. Help us be that church. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.